you're listening to the My Care Champion Cast. I'm your host, Lucy Shimatero of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. Each month, we invite industry experts and thought leaders to discuss relevant healthcare issues. Join us as we explore key topics that affect Michigan hospitals, health systems, and the health of our communities. Hello, and welcome to season two, episode one of the My Care Champion Cast. I'm Lucy Shimatero, Assistant Director of Communications at the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. In recent local news, you may have seen headlines alluding to the fact that nearly all healthcare occupations in Michigan are projected to experience shortages between now and 2032. That insight comes from the Michigan Healthcare Workforce Index, a report published by the Michigan Health Council, who is a friend and associate member of the MHA. The index is a comprehensive, first-of-its-kind report that assesses the outlook of 36 healthcare jobs in the state. Today, we'll discuss a little bit more about the report findings, but also get a look into how they drive home the importance of investing in our healthcare talent pipeline. To help guide the discussion, I have Milani Brim in studio, who is president and CEO of the Michigan Health Council. Milani, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Lucy. I'm happy to be here. Well, you're the first guest of our new program year, so we're very excited to have you. And I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and we just had our annual meeting, and I know that MHC was a community sponsor, so thank you for your support. Absolutely. I would love to learn a little bit more about your background, and also, if you don't mind, um, providing our listeners a little bit more background on what the Michigan Health Council is. Sure. Um, let me start. I'll start with Michigan Health Council. So sure. we are a nonprofit organization. We've been around for eight decades. Wow. Uh, doing healthcare workforce work. Um, we were founded by the Michigan Health and Hospital Association, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, uh, although I think they had a slightly different name back then, um, <laughs> and the Michigan State Medical Society. Um, originally, they I just learned this. Um, they were they wanted to be an insurance um, program for veterans returning from World War II. Okay. Um, we always thought we were founded because they were all concerned there weren't going to be enough doctors. But mm-hmm. turns out that wasn't exactly the reason. But over the years, our, our mission, our purpose has, has really focused in on uh, making sure um, or trying to help uh, make sure there are enough healthcare professionals to take care of the citizens of Michigan. So we provide a group of products and services that really help um, our partners, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's employers or academic institution or students or individual health professionals, um, with the resources they need to accomplish their goals. We, in a lot of ways, we ourselves don't solve workforce problems, but we make sure that we have uh, resources that help other organizations do that. Um, so I started working with the Health Council in 2001 uh, when I worked for the state of Michigan. Uh, I was back then the director of the bureau that licenses all health professionals. Okay. And uh, became really aware kind of of the access, the relationship between workforce and access to care. Mm -hmm. And so in 2001, we started working with the Health Council, um, providing some funding um, to help them uh, pursue some initiatives uh, to help expand the workforce, particularly in the nursing arena. Mm-hmm. So over the years, I stayed kind of connected to them. And right. then in 2014, had an opportunity to come on board um, as president and CEO of the Health Council. 
That's amazing. Well, were you picturing that you'd end up in healthcare or in the healthcare sector or? Uh, yeah. So I started, yeah. I started my career at Michigan State University when I was 18. Go green. Yeah, go green. <laughs> uh, go white. Yeah. Um, I was a switchboard operator at Olin Health Center. Oh. And, uh, and on the weekends ran medical records mm-hmm. and admitted patients to, to Olin. Wow. Um, and so that's where I started. And I got... Um, in about my junior year, discovered there was a profession called medical record administration. And uh, when I was introduced to it, I said, um, oh, there's really a, you can get a degree in filing medical records. Like, yeah, That's really awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but discovered it was a lot more than that. Yeah. And so um, pretty much my entire career has been in healthcare. Yeah. Never tried anything else. Done it. I've, you know, I worked for a lot of um I worked for hospitals. I worked in long-term care. I worked for uh, correctional health care. I worked in um, all kinds of different—I worked a lot lot with vulnerable populations, Mm -hmm. which are always connected to access to care issues. Um, And then came to the state of Michigan, uh, where I did the licensing and regulation of health professions, Mm -hmm. um, worked in health policy and planning, and then ended my career there in public health. And what has kept you in healthcare, in the field of healthcare? You know, when I worked for the— the Bureau of Health Professions, which was the licensing bureau. Um, and I was asked one time um, in an interview um, why I continue to do that work because it's kind of hard work. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, it's it's um, it's it's all about protecting the health and safety and the welfare of the public. Right. And I think as I look back over my entire career, it has always been about um, meeting the needs of people. Right. Um, and healthcare is a great place to do that. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think I've had a little bit of a service mentality. That's you know? amazing. I was going to say that's, I mean, that passion is what we need in healthcare, yeah. in all yeah. facets of healthcare, right? And you always just feel like you're doing good. You exactly. Um, Especially yeah. when you're working in, on access and trying to help those vulnerable communities that need, that need the support. I gave a little bit of an overview of what the Michigan Healthcare Workforce Index Report is, but I would love if you could provide a little bit more background um, and explain exactly maybe what the purpose and goals of that index were. Sure. Um, as you mentioned, it is um, a comprehensive assessment of 36 different health occupations uh, in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And what we did was systematically go through and rank each occupation on a variety of different data points. Um, and it, helps to provide comparisons across professions Mm -hmm. and projects shortages over the next 10 years. Right. Um, So in creating that index, our goal really was to provide a data source Mm -hmm. um, that would help decision makers, um, hospital CEOs, policymakers, um, quickly understand um, the current state of both individual occupations, but but also collectively. Right. You know, sometimes we get really fixated on one profession and ignore the professions that kind of wrap around that profession. Mm-hmm. So you might look at nursing and you don't think about nursing assistants or patient care technicians, you know, right. the other people that work around them. Mm-hmm. And so with the index, hopefully we can kind of paint that broader picture of, of how those all come together and impact um, overall care. Yeah. And I know I won't have you list all 36 <laughs> careers that it looks at, but can you name a few of the the healthcare positions that it did look at? Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> <laughs> I know there's a lot. There's 36. Yeah. Um, so that's half the episode. You're it, just going to okay, list all okay, of them okay, if you don't okay, mind. Start in. Um, so obviously it looked at um, nurse practitioners. It looked at physician assistants. Um, some of the technologies like radiology technolo- mm-hmm. technicians. Um 
and I'll talk a, a little bit uh, in a while about um, kind of all the support functions, home health care aides, mm-hmm. uh, nursing assistants, medical assistants, pharmacy techs. Um, so we went kind of the gamut from, from those high-demand, low-pay, low-wage jobs all the way up through physicians. Right. And everything in between. Right. That's good. That's yeah. a broad spectrum. It's very broad. So before we get into the specific findings, I know they were really compelling. I, I know data isn't everybody's forte, mine included. <laughs> I mean, I got a degree in communication, so I'm the first one to be confused by data language. But mm-hmm. can you give just a quick overview of, of what the specific variables were sure. that were, you know, measuring the, the results of the index? Uh, yes. So uh, one, I would start by saying we used uh, three different quantitative Mm -hmm. uh, sources for data plus um, several qualitative data reviews. So um, I'm going to focus on really Lightcast um, as the major source for data, which Lightcast is a leader in labor market analytics. Okay. Um, They gather and integrate um, data from dozens and dozens of sources, public, private, put them together in one large database that you can access. Um, So they look at things like um, economic, uh, labor market data, demographics, education, um, job posting data. And Mm -hmm. so all of that's in there. Um, So we use that. Um, We also use some data from... Um, the Association of Mer- American Medical Colleges and Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education to assist in looking at physician retention, okay. physician resident retention, I should say. Um, but the four variables that went into the index were growth of the profession over the next 10 years, wage growth over the past 10 years, so how, how has it grown, mm-hmm. uh, turnover, and then the projected shortages based on a, on comparing the number of expected job openings with um, the number of degree completions the okay. educate, from the educational supply side. Mm-hmm. So are we producing, educating enough to meet the openings? Right. So from there, do you want me to talk about how we rank them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know that there was a distinction in the report that it's not meant to be a ranking of best versus worst you know, healthcare jobs. That wasn't meant to be the takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. So we do we do rank them from healthiest to least healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, that's based on those variables. Right. Um, so um, each occupation was ranked from 1 to 36 on each of those four. So growth, wages, turnover, and that projected shortage number. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're a low number, if you came up like a 1, um, that meant you were well-positioned on that particular variable. So the higher the number, the less favorable you are. Okay. So then the results of those were all summed up into one ranking, mm-hmm. and that you'll find that in the report with real high numbers, meaning uh, lower in the priority. So, you know, if I'm 36th, that means that there's a problem. Right. So, those would be what we would refer to as the unhealthiest. Okay. So can you just name maybe one of the healthiest and one of the... Not so, yeah, so, so two of the healthiest are nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Okay. And probably the two, um, the unhealthiest are probably in that category, home health and personal care aides, nursing assistants, medical assistants. And when you say that, do you mean that those healthcare roles are projected to experience worse shortages? Is that an element of, of when you say that that's what that could be translated to? Yeah, so we look, um, the index actually looks at shortages from two different perspectives. One is an absolute value shortage, which means those are the, the occupations that have the largest projected shortage, just based on sheer number. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, home health and personal care aides. 
The shortage is projected to be 168,312 by 2032. Um, Another one is um, nursing assistants, almost 62,000, and medical assistants, 24,510. And I mean, you think about rural Michigan, what does that mean? Yeah, because again, yes, you still have geographic. So one thing I should go back and say is Mm -hmm. nearly every profession of the 36 that we looked at will experience a projected shortage, all of them but three. Wow. But even for those three, there's a geographic maldistribution issue. Okay. Bottom line is we're not we're not good across the board. Right, yeah. right. All yeah. areas need support, yeah, even the healthy need. projections. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know it touches on a little bit of the behavioral health side of things, too. Uh, can you elaborate on, on what those positions looked like? Sure. They're, um, I think the occupations that require um, an MSW, mm-hmm. so that's a grouping within our occupational clusters. And so that's... And MSW is... Masters in Social Work. Yeah, Sorry thank about you. That. No, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, includes like healthcare social workers, marriage and family therapists, rehab mm-hmm. counselors, mental health and substance abuse so, uh, social workers. Um, they are sixth when you look at that absolute value shortage. You know, sheer numbers. Um, so they're projected by 2032 to have a shortage of 10,702. Wow. And that's not including, you know, psychiatrists or, or any other profession, psychologists to support the, you know, the kind of the whole picture of a behavioral health. That's right. just the professions that are that master's in social work connected. Right. So when you talk about behavioral health, um, this, this was um, really shocking to me. In a study um, done in 2020 by the Kaiser Family Foundation, um, Michigan had one of the most severe behavioral health shortages in the country, over 5.2 million, which is slightly over half of our population, live in what's called a federally designated mental health shortage area or medically underserved area, which means over half of our population don't have um, ready access to um, behavioral health services. Right. And in a recent study from Alterum, um, behavioral health provider capacity was noted to be particularly low in the upper half of the lower peninsula, where we actually have four counties where they have no psychiatrists, no psychologists, and no um, substance use disorder treatment facilities. Yep. So it's, um, it's, it is pretty significant. Yeah. I know behavioral health is a huge priority for the MHA and continues to be yeah. into the new program year. And we have members who are doing really incredible work. I'm, we're working on our community benefit report right now, and there's a lot of hospitals and healthcare systems that are investing in their communities to address some of those behavioral health gaps. So um, this data, obviously, it might seem a little bit gloomy, but I, I want to touch on some of the positives. And I think you know, you and I had discussed beforehand with, with knowledge comes power, right? Exactly. So what opportunities does the report present? And I want to know specifically how it informs the the need to keep investing in our talent pipeline. As I said, you know, nearly every occupation is expected to experience a shortage. So I think that in itself speaks to the importance of investing in, in the talent pipeline. Mm-hmm. I think I'll start by maybe looking at turnover and the relationship, particularly to the top uh, two occupations experiencing the greatest shortage, which again were the home health care and personal uh, care aides and um, nursing assistants, um, both which were ranked 35th and 36th in terms of um, shortage. Mm-hmm. Some recent turnover data shows that for um, certified nursing assistants, CNAs, right. um, the turnover rate is 88%. 
annually. Whoa. And for medical assistance, it's 66%. So not in, you know, we know that turnover is, you know, a significant cost for employers. Every time you have to replace somebody, there's cost associated with it, whether it's recruitment, retraining, onboarding. Um, but, you know, when you put that together with a projected shortage, what you end up with is, um, you know, potentially the impact on the ability of an organization to be able to maintain the services at their current level or at all. Right. You know, we, we you know, certainly have heard data about hospitals closing beds. Mm-hmm. Um, I know from you know, my own personal experience, you know, trying to get um, appointments with specialists. You have something that you need to get seen for, and they're telling you the first available appointment is four months from now. Right. Um, so I think that's, you know, and when you have turnover, um, positions are vacant. It means it's harder to provide services. Mm-hmm. And I think so, again, when you think about um, why we need to invest in it, right? if we're going to even be able to maintain what we have today, we have to do that. Right. Um, one aspect that we haven't touched on um, that the report does also address is uh, the need to increase the diversity of the workforce. Absolutely. Um, in, um, to better reflect the communities that we serve. Yes. Um, the index does include a, um, some data on the most diverse occupations. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really interesting is that um, while some occupations are relatively diverse, occupations like licensed practical nurses, mm-hmm. um, behavioral health, and all those patient support occupations, many of those are low-wage earning jobs. Right. And the risk in, is that that means that while they may be a better reflection of the community, um, they are also occupations where they might consider leaving healthcare um, for higher wages in other industries. So, you know, when you see McDonald's or you see Burger King um, saying we're, you know, we're paying sixteen or seventeen dollars an hour, and you're a um, home care worker and you're being paid twelve dollars an hour, mm-hmm. it is hard to to keep them in the workforce. And again, they represent at the moment a lot of our diversity. Right. And so that's kind of if you lose them, it's a kind of a double um, impact. Absolutely. And having a more diverse, you know, workforce directly helps the health equity of an access to care. Absolutely, because we already know from research that uh, outcomes are better uh, when providers um, look like um, the patients are serving. Absolutely. Um, so it is uh, really important. So investing in pipeline programs mm. um, designed to target students of diverse backgrounds is really essential to changing the overall demographics. If you want to change the trajectory, you've got to invest early on in the pipeline to attract um, students of color mm-hmm. um, to health careers. Absolutely. How else can education and healthcare leaders work together and collaborate? I know they already are in a lot of ways, but what else can be done to to help with that workforce development piece? Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I, I like to remind um, folks that, you know, employers are the ones that really drive this. Mm. Uh, for a long time, we've, um, even at our organization, our board was heavily um, composed of um, academic institutions. And then, you know, one day you, you kind of sit back and you say, well, really, it's the employer's who determine what the demand is. Right. And and then educational institutions need to respond to that, mm-hmm. need to make sure they're offering programs that support those professions that are most in demand. Um, so establishing relationships with colleges and universities in the community 
um, is really important to assuring that there is um, a talent pipeline that, mm-hmm. that's going to meet the demands. Um, working with organizations such as the Michigan Workforce Training and Education Collaborative, um, MW Tech, you know, they focus on building collaborative, employer-aligned educational programs. So community mm-hmm. colleges working to, with employers to provide access to kind of um, uh, those professions that are small in number um, and hard to find educational programs. So those partnerships to really connect employers and academic institutions together to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, doing things like offering apprenticeships. Right. You know, that's kind of new to healthcare to be doing that. But we have one of the you know, first nursing apprenticeships yes. in Michigan. Yes. Um, we have other professions that are also offering um, surgical techs, uh, mm-hmm. medical assistants. And that's a great way to um, particularly move um, the incumbent workforce, people who are in those low-wage positions, um, to give them an opportunity to move along a career pathway. Exactly. While they're making money, you know— <laughs> still getting a living wage, hopefully, mm-hmm. um, while they're getting educated in a new profession. Right. Um, so it's a win-win for the student. It's a win-win for the employer. Um, and so doing things like that, I think, is is really crucial. And that takes a partnership between um, an employer and an, an educational um, institution. Absolutely. Um, my personal my personal favorite, which is um, generating that pipeline of future health professionals, mm. which begins with the K-12. Oh, yeah. If we are not convincing kids by middle school that healthcare is where it's at, we're too late. Right. So engaging with local school districts and supporting programs that build career awareness, um, provide opportunities for career exploration and preparing students for success mm-hmm. are great ways for employers to be part of that. Yeah. I mean, how many people have you met that have said, I knew I wanted to be a nurse when I was a kid. My mom was a nurse. My grandma exactly. was a nurse. My, my dad, aunt was a nurse. Yeah, my yeah. dad's a doctor. Everybody. That's yeah. such a strong factor. It and is. I think it is a matter of witnessing it when you're in your childhood, the impact of, of being in a healthcare career yes. and what that means and what that looks like. And and understanding that really early on. And, and which is why it is really important, particularly to um, uh, bring programs that expose kids who didn't have that. Right. So, you know, we have a, we have a program. Well, we used to do a program called Mini Medical School. It's kind of morphing, oh. thanks to COVID, into a kind of a virtual thing. Um, but it was really designed to go into underserved community schools um, in those communities and introduce kids who didn't have parents who were nurses and doctors right. who had never maybe even been to a healthcare professional mm-hmm. to get them to understand that that was an opportunity potentially for them. And there are a lot of accessible opportunities. It doesn't yes. require always a, a medical degree. There's so many non-clinical oh, jobs in healthcare that absolutely. have just as important yep. of an impact on the healthcare yep. Yep. process so, so if you're, you know, you, you know, you don't want to invest, you know, 11 to 12 years of your, your life um, getting through medical school. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, everything from certificate programs to you know, associate degrees to, you know, there's just, there's wherever on that continuum. Right. So lots, lots of opportunities. And along those lines, I know that we are a proud sponsor of your Vitals publication. <laughs> Can you share a little bit about what that is and, and how yes. it reaches that K through 12 audience? Yep. So, um, uh, you know, I don't know how many people are familiar with the Highlights for Kids magazine. Yes. You know, I remember as a kid being in the dentist's office. I was going to say they were always at the doctor's office. <laughs> yep. So and there were puzzles and games in them yeah. and whatever. So our Vitals magazine, it's, it's actually more of a book. Um, 
it's about uh, 50 pages, so it's a pretty substantive, um, but it's built along that highlights uh, idea. And so what it does is it introduces, um, I think, particularly um, kids in the like fourth to seventh grade. Okay. Probably most applicable uh, to different health and wellness issues. And then for those, it then presents the career that um, would take care of addressing that. So it introduces some behavioral health things and then talks about a psychologist and oh, their role in nice. doing that. Yeah. Um, and so um, we're trying to um, distribute those through the intermediate school districts um, to healthcare providers to make them, you know, available in their office. Mm-hmm. Um, but really hoping that can, kids can get their hands on them, yeah. look through them. There's activities in them. So there's puzzles and all kinds of things in there that gets them kind of engaged and and interacting with the information that's in the book. Yeah, so, I love that. And, and thank a, you, by the way, to MHA for helping to support us uh, publishing that and making it available. We yeah, really appreciate I mean, it's, that. it's absolutely very important. And I, I know it's very easy to get off Amazon, too. So it anybody is. listening, don't feel like... <laughs> You have to go to your local doctor's office to get it. It's available, and we'll include a link to to those who may be interested. And have you gotten any feedback from or, or seen any kids that have uh, used it and and maybe expressed some interest after the fact? No, I we I, I haven't personally, but I, I have heard from colleagues who have shared it in other places. Uh, at other meetings, they've taken copies with them, and and everybody seems to react in a great way to it. Yeah. Um, so uh, it you know it's part of our program that uh, called Next Generation Health Careers Academy, mm-hmm. which is um, our work around elementary school, middle school, high school, um, building out resources for teachers mm-hmm. to who are required to address careers um, as part of the state's Michigan Career Development Model. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to work in that healthcare space. Yeah. Um, getting ahead of some of the other industries. We hope uh, to, to convince kids to go into healthcare. Yeah, um, and so vitals is one one part of that piece mm-hmm. uh, to kind of help give teachers resources to help kids be aware of careers, explore what they look like, and be ready to enter into a program to get educated in that. Yeah, I, I know when I was growing up, it was like college wasn't even really a question. It was yep. kind of just like everyone was going to that could was going to take that four year degree route. But now I have a 16 year old sister and even, you know, younger nieces and nephews. And they talk about it's not really a th- like expected yep. anymore. It's yep. actually a, more talked about to take other paths. And I think that opens a conversation for people to learn more about these healthcare careers that yep. Don't require a PhD or an right. MD. You know, it's it's a real opportunity. I think, and the, the tide is turning in that way. So I think it'll be really helpful. And I think you know, it's um, you know, employers are really um, getting smart about that. The um, kind of developing career pathways, yes, to, for incumbent workers, mm-hmm. so that you know, one of the successes is when you can take an existing employee and educate them and move them up. Uh, through careers. One, it um, shows that you care about them, you are investing in them, and they are more likely to stay not only with your organization, but with healthcare as an industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so even if you're entering healthcare at those kind of low wage, minimum education requirement jobs Mm -hmm. coming in as a nursing assistant or a patient care tech. If as an employer, you're providing opportunities for them to look beyond that while they work for you, um, it's a win-win for everybody. Absolutely. And I think that's the case across the board, even outside of healthcare. That's been proven time and time again. If you invest in your your teams, they'll invest in you. So I appreciate you bringing that up. 
Well, before I let you go, are there any other initiatives? I I actually do want to ask while I have you here, is there anything at MHC that you're working on currently in the health equity implicit bias bias space? I know um, we touched on, you know, diverse workforce and the importance of that. And I I just Mm -hmm. was hoping you could elaborate on anything else that, that you're working on in that Arena. Sure. So, um, so a couple things. Um, one, uh, we have a diversity work group um, it, within some of our nursing work that is focused on trying to look at how to change the trajectory of the diversity of the nursing workforce. We have that. When the state put into place the uh, implicit bias requirement last year, yep. uh, we kind of jumped on that, and we have um, two staff now who provide implicit bias training. Um, in person, virtually, um, on demand. Um, so you can find out a lot more about that on our uh, website, mhc.org. Um, we also do, um, and it's, I guess it's my pet project, um, which is work around health literacy. Specifically right now, I'm doing a small grant that focuses on the uh, intersection of implicit bias and health literacy, mm. um, recognizing that nine out of 10 people uh, in the United States, are uh, have low levels of health literacy, right? And so we developed a curriculum to, and so we're all about improving communication between providers and patients, and not trying to pick fix patient literacy, mm-hmm. making it possible for providers to work with the literacy level that a patient presents. Meeting patients where they are. Right, meeting patients where they are. So so we have a curriculum that we offer. We do some um, other work around helping to assess organizational literacy. Are, mm-hmm. You know, as an organization, are you prepared um, to uh, provide services in a health literate way? Mm-hmm. Which obviously, you know, the, the, the impact of not paying attention to health literacy is poor clinical outcomes, Patients not accessing care, right. um, medical errors, mm-hmm. um, impacts patient safety, contributes dis- to disparities. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there's data to back that up. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, that's I think in terms of some health equity, you know, that's another space that we're working in. Yeah, and on the implicit bias side, have those trainings? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you're collecting data to kind of show their impact, or if you've just gotten anecdotes from people who've participated. What's the feedback been? So I think right now, um, I think they are working on a little bit of an evaluation, but we have tons of anecdotal. We have um, Kirsten Sewell, who is the primary trainer for Implicit Bias, has a bulletin board in her office where she, she uh, we call it her, her affirmation board oh. because it's, it's emails that she's gotten back from people who said, oh my gosh, this was so beneficial. Things oh. like, I didn't think that I needed to hear this. Mm-hmm. Or other people who have said, oh my God. Everybody needs to take this. Yeah. Would have, and so um, she's actually um, just finished up training with uh, um, uh, a behavioral health organization. Mm-hmm. Um, she's been doing public health departments. You know, it's um, and everybody is like, you know, um, this is really important. Yeah, we had Renee Kennedy on the podcast a, a while back, probably almost two years ago now. Um, And we were talking about social determinants of health and and teaching people about that and teaching people about health equity. And one of the things she said really stuck with me was people are intimidated by the idea of not having all the answers. And and she made a point of saying, if you come to the table with questions, you're in the like, that's the right thing to do. You're supposed to come to those conversations with questions, not all the answers. So it's good to hear that people are going to those trainings and feeling empowered and not criticized or they're learning and yes. it's a necessary thing to yes. learn about. And, and, and understanding it is an ongoing process. We will, we will never 
be experts. Exactly. So one thing I would say about our implicit bias that I think is really um, a, a real asset is um, Kristen really chose to focus on um, a lot of different dimensions of implicit bias mm -hmm. so that there are different modules for everything from um, racism to poverty uh, to gender. Mm -hmm. um, they're doing one on body size. I think our plans are to do one on ageism. And so um, because sometimes people who come to, come to this, you know, they, they said, I have to take implicit bias training. The right. state is making me. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be all about race mm -hmm. and you know, and that that is a um, a difficult space yeah. for some people to be in, mm -hmm. and so um, sometimes you can start the conversations about implicit bias around a dimension that maybe isn't. Um, it's a little bit easier to confront, and then you can work up to the bigger, harder issues that are become even more personal. So maybe you can start by talking about poverty, and then begin to to move up to where then you you know that you're doing the one on racism. Mm -hmm. um, so so depending on where an organization is or an individual is, because people can also do this on an individual basis. Right. Um, you know, you can start where you're comfortable. Yeah. Absolutely. And well, continue that learning journey. Exactly. Meet people where they are and then keep the learning yeah, going. That's right. Keep the learning going. <laughs> We're going to be sure to include links to the implicit mm -hmm. bias training um, for anybody who's interested. And then one question I did forget to ask you uh, related to the index. I know education is a huge part of what MHC does. And I was just I was curious if there was anything that you've worked on. I know you talked a little bit about the grant that you're working mm -hmm. on, but any passion projects that have you've seen a real impact in the workforce development space? If I can get to that in a minute, because I have yeah. one, one thing I, w I do want to, when you asked about how to collaborate on workforce development, and I, and I would be remiss if I didn't do this. Um, so the index mm -hmm. itself is a part of a larger pro project called SolutionNet, funded by the Michigan Health Endowment Fund. And there are a couple other pieces that are um, on the website. Under, uh, it's like mhc.org slash solutions. Mm -hmm. One is called The Hub and it is uh, includes profiles of more than 200 initiatives that organizations are working on mm. um, related to healthcare workforce development. So it could be everything from pipeline programs to career pathway programs. It is sorted by prosperity region. Okay, the states. 10 prosperity regions. So you can go in and if you're if you're a, you know a, a hospital CEO who's just intrigued about I you know I really would like to do some K to 12 pipeline programs with mm -hmm. my community, you can go in and search in your own region, you can search other people's regions. Um, and and look for people who have um, you know a, a, something that looks like a best practice to you. Okay. And then we have contact information and, and ways to find out more about those things. So that's really important. It also is an opportunity for organizations to um, put their own own initiatives in. So right. if they haven't had a chance to connect a, with us, um, you can go on and, and add yours. Yeah, um, that so sounds like a really... It just becomes a great repository for... So you're not reinventing the wheel. Yeah. And, and you know, my, the ideal for me would be that you actually identify some partners in there, that mm -hmm. some organizations you might actually be able to develop a collaborative relationship with yeah, um, I feel and like have a bigger impact. A lot of the work always comes back to the importance of collaboration yeah. and not reinventing the wheel, but working with the partners that are yeah. already in the community. Yeah. So that sounds like a really helpful and useful yeah. database that you have. Yeah. That's good to know. So in terms of, you know, something like really rewarding, I just, I think really the, the working in that K-12 to space, um, we... Um, when we we started with this medi, mini medical school program, um, it was actually uh, started by the Michigan Osteopathic Association, and then at some point we agreed to kind of take it over. 
Um, and it's it was a program, and it's still, it's virtual now, but it was in person. And we would go and spend a day uh, in an elementary school. And um, we have like seven stations where kids would rotate through. So they'd learn about bones and organs and mm-hmm. nutrition and physical education. And then when they got done, um, they got to put on a white uh you know, doctor's coat, mm-hmm. um, a stethoscope, um, and then they would get their picture taken with a certificate saying they were a graduate of mini medical school. Aww. But with that, uh, the staff person who ran that program at the time would sit down while they were waiting to take pictures with kids and talk to them. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of early in one of our earliest programs. And she sat down with a little boy. She, it was over in Flint. And she asked. And so one thing about that was important about that, and even with our virtual version, uh, is we connect kids with students who look like them, medical students, nursing students, so that they can see that it is possible yeah. um, that that's real, that I could be one of those. Mm-hmm. And this, she asked this little boy, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so he said, well, he said, I could be a janitor. And I assume that's because that was probably the male role model he saw at school. He said, or I could be a doctor. Oh, and I was like, love that. okay, that's why you do mini medical school. Yeah. That's why we do the K-12 to work. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that mentorship, too. Yes. Even if it's a stranger, you can yeah. meet someone for five minutes and it yeah. can have such an impact on yeah. The way you see the world as a kid. Yeah, we have so many amazing pictures of of kids, you know, uh, holding the fake heart and mm-hmm. talking with a medical student about what that means, yeah. or bones and looking at the X rays together, um, with with again students who look like them, and it's, yeah. it's just it is. Um, yeah, really rewarding to watch that. Yeah, there, it reminds me of I think it's MSU and, and possibly Sparrow might still do it, but it was called the MSU Teddy Bear Picnic. Did you ever oh, hear yeah, of that? I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I think it was originally, you know, created to help kids overcome a fear of yeah. the doctor. But that seems like another opportunity to kind of show them the possibilities of yeah. if you wanted to be a doctor and take care of, you know, real children, you could do it there. So, yeah, just uh, it made me think of that. It's a really cute event. And they do get the I think they are also given like the white the, doctor yeah. coats or there's med yeah. students, I think, are the ones who mainly participate right. and show them. How to not be afraid of, right. you know, your physician. But, yeah, um, yeah just I, I think it is really important to touch on that age group and, and talk to them sooner than later. And again, so. as I said, you know, like people used to say, you know, we, you know, you need to connect with them in high school. Mm. But kids are actually doing their career planning I in middle that. school. Oh, in middle, middle school? Middle school. Wow. So they're leaving eighth grade with a career plan in place so that they know what pathway they're going to go on in in high school. Yeah. Is it the health, healthcare track? Is it a, you know. And I remember doing it in high school. I don't well, remember that, middle school. Yeah. So now it, it happens much earlier. <laughs> yeah. So again, so when people say in high school, I'm like, no, you're too late. Mm. So so that really hitting from like fourth grade to eighth grade is so important. Yeah. And it's so important to the long-term impact of our workforce. If we are not growing, and here's a really frightening statistic that I learned just not too long ago is in 21, I think it was 21 or 22, we had 10,000 less high school students graduate than in 2019. Wow. So when you think about that, 10,000 less, all of, all of us baby boomers are, you know, slowly we're all exiting the workforce, mm-hmm. fewer, fewer students coming into the labor market, and we're competing in healthcare for a lot of those kids who are in the STEM so that's, you know, technology, engineering, other uh, other things. So right. 
again, pipeline programs are just crucial to beginning to have a workforce that's sufficient to, to pick up where the baby boomers are dropping off. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that stat. I, I wasn't aware of that. That's really was that's shocking. frightening to think yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to also mention the nursing summit coming up in October. Um, is that open to anyone? Is that open? What's the purpose of it and who's who's invited? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So for I, I'm not sure if it's eight years or nine years, we've been offering um, an annual summit for nurses. Um, this year is a little bit different um, because we actually got it approved for CE for social workers as well. Oh, so amazing. one of the things with our nursing summit is we really kind of stay away from clinical stuff. So we really focus on things like the last couple of years, particularly around resilience and, you know, um, communication and kind of those general things that, that – um, uh, added to their clinical, which they can get through their other associations. So this year is really, and I, I'm, I'm blanking on the theme, but it's about being seen, heard, and valued. Mm. And so we have a variety of speakers, um, which include things around implicit bias and human trafficking and the things that nurses have to get. Um, but this year, we're broadening a little bit. We had some interest from a couple health departments who said, you know, can we bring our social workers? And we're like, well... Yes, you can. Yeah. Um, so, um, but really anybody can, can come because the lens isn't specifically, uh, it's not real nursing focused. Mm -hmm. um, it is the first time we're on the west side of the state. So in, we're in, it will be in Grand Rapids. And so we're pretty excited about that. Grand Rapids in October is beautiful is, too. <laughs> Just <laughs> shameless plug for the state of I, Michigan. I I'm a west sider. So I'm like, yeah, you oh, need to, you need that. to come because it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Um, but it's usually somewhere between, you know, 200 to 250 nurses who get together. Um, lots of opportunity for networking. We have a great um, support from sponsors, including MHA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so we thank you again for that very much. Um, but yeah, we would love to see um, everybody send. You know, and it's, it's a hard time for us. And I, I will just say recognizing the staffing shortages, mm -hmm. you know, particularly in the acute care side, it's really hard to free up staff to be able to let them to go. But it is a wonderful opportunity to, particularly at a time where we're dealing with um, burnout and stress. It's a great opportunity to um, hear from speakers who are focused on um, kind of building up that skill set to deal with those things. Right. And be in the presence of people who are in yeah. the thick of it with you and also yes. understand and maybe could reinvigorate some, you know, exactly. passion and excitement for, for the roles because healthcare jobs are so very important. Right. And sometimes you need reminding of just how important they are. And would you say that that's open not only to people that are in the profession, like healthcare professions, but also would you encourage maybe nursing students to attend? Maybe oh, somebody absolutely. who isn't in the <laughs> we, profession. Actually, yet? we just talked yesterday about we should be we should really be focusing particularly those uh, community college programs yeah. on the west side of the state. But yes, it's it really we we um, have um, reduced rates for students, mm -hmm. um, also retirees. Um, it is really open. We have a you know it's a, a split between um, kind of our academic nurses. So educators and then, you know, bedside nurses and uh, leadership. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a broad spectrum of people. That's great. I know you mentioned networking, so I just yeah. wanted to call that out. And Absolutely. registration closes, you said, August 15th? So, so the um, the early bird oh. closes uh, August 15th. Okay. You, you can register right up to the day. And if you walked into the summit 
without registering, we'd take you anyway. <laughs> Love yeah. that. Perfect. Yeah, but it's, it's the reduced um, uh, early bird rate ends August 15th. Good to know. Perfect. Well, I'm going to make sure we include details of that in our website um, newsroom article mm-hmm. and also just in the description of the episode. Because be awesome. if, if you're interested, absolutely check it out. And it's also, I'm guessing, details are on the Michigan Health Council website, yeah, too. Or you can go to Michigan Center for Nursing. Oh, Okay website and you'll find all of the information on the summit there. Wonderful. Well, as always, we will be sure to include everything in the episode's description. Um, So that'll include, you know, the workforce index, a link to that, the vitals activity book, registration for the nursing summit. Uh, I'm also going to include a link to our healthcare careers webpage and of course, a direct link to the MHC website. So Milani, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you. This was great. And I um, am most appreciative of the opportunity to talk about the index. Absolutely. Well, with that, I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in and be sure to subscribe or follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And we will be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening to the My Care Champion cast. To learn more or get involved, visit MHA.org.